Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I wanted to take uh, a brief moment and just talk about a couple of things real quick. Um, we uh, obviously, Pastor Andy has been our, our lead pastor here for some months now, and um, I came on staff part-time as worship pastor here uh, a couple of months ago as well. So I've been working really closely with Andy, and he's not here this morning. Uh, he's helping take care of Jessica, his daughter, that we were praying about, uh, praying for earlier. But I just wanted to say, as somebody who is walking with Andy in a discipleship relationship and seeing him a lot in a professional context, working with the church, um, he is doing such an amazing, incredible job. Like, the heart of this guy is beyond what we had hoped to be able to get for a lead pastor for our church. We had the bar set pretty high when we were interviewing people, and this guy has just exceeded our expectations over and over again. Um, there are things that, you know, just in the day-to-day goings-on, you just don't know how much this guy carries this church in his heart, how much he's already shown to be so protective over the, the congregation of this church. Um, it's, it's truly amazing. And, of course, when he gets up here on a Sunday morning, he doesn't say that about himself, so I'm saying it for him. Uh, he's, he's doing an incredible job. So make sure and thank him. <laughs> um, also, I wanted to say... Uh, it's been really important to our church to, um, to press into things of the Holy Spirit because we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are active. They are available for us to use, and if we're not stepping into that, we're really missing out. Um, and so we have a, a prophetic team here at our church that's just getting started, but um, in the mornings they're, they're praying and, and seeking God for what he has to say over our church this morning. Uh, and so Allie Dwyer is, is part of that team, and hi, Al, sorry. She didn't know I was going to do that, so she's a little caught off guard. Um, but Guy Haynes as well, and it's just been really impactful to get these words uh, each morning that are so applicable to exactly what we're talking about or what's going on within our church on a given Sunday morning. And so I definitely expect to see more of that talked about and brought out in the coming weeks. Um, but yeah, if you'd like to be part of that team, if you'd like to find out more about it, you can contact my lovely bride up here, Elissa Hyde. Uh, that's Elissa Hyde at acc-w.org right now. Um, I guess I should say dash. That's what the kids are saying, uh, watching the MTV and all that. Like it's it's a dash and it's a it's a hashtag. It's not a pound sign. All right. In case you thought I was younger than I really am, I'm not. All right. <clears throat> so, all that said, let's go ahead and pray as we start off. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much that you are here. In this place this morning, you are within us when we accept Christ, when we dedicate our lives to him, when we submit our, ourselves to you. We thank you that you're here not just to hang out, but you're here to do a work in us. You're here to reveal your word, your character, your heart for us this morning. And so we submit ourselves to you and we pray that you would do that. We thank you for your willingness to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool. So is this sounding okay? Do I need to make any adjustments? Okay. This is my first time with a, uh, a not holding a microphone, so my hands are free. Feels a little bit weird up here, but it's kind of cool. Uh, so I thought I would do something special. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, uh, I'm juggling right now. Uh, three, three knives and a chainsaw. The chainsaw is remarkably well-oiled and electric, so it's silent. And big finish, okay. All right. Thank you for that applause. That was, yeah. I've been practicing that all week. Okay. So 
Last week, Andy started a series on the book of James and titled it Faith That Works. Um, obviously, we don't want to have faith that doesn't work because that would be pretty useless. And elsewhere in the Bible, it tells us that it is impossible to please God without faith. So faith is something really important. We want to know about it. We want to activate it. We want to walk in it. Also, this book of James is written by none other than James. Yes. But not the Apostle James, not the Disciple James, uh, one of the sons of thunder, as they were called, but actually the brother of Jesus, James, who grew up around Jesus. Here's where you cue the joke about Mary saying, why can't you be more like Jesus? Um, <laughs> Mom. Um, but he was, he was a very important early church leader. Uh, he, he wrote this book that is very important uh, in the Christian faith. Um, some people aren't really hip to this book because it does talk about the work we do and walking out our faith as well as the belief that we have. And so some people feel like it kind of you know, attacks a little bit the idea that we're saved by grace alone, by grace through faith, but there's actually some works involved. And I don't think that's what he's saying. And uh, Martin Luther was one of the guys who was like, we shouldn't even have James in the Bible. But uh, if you do a Google search on Martin Luther quotes, you'll find out that he was wrong about some other stuff too. Um, uh, in fact, if, if you're Jesus, you can be right about everything. Uh, if there's anybody else, including a minister, uh, who's just doing a knockout job and right about a lot of stuff, they're wrong about something. So, uh, yeah, Martin Luther was no exception. Anyway, uh, so the book of James is like a collection of wise advice on numerous topics. It's a little bit like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament in that way. So it seems to jump around a little bit. It's like, hey, here's something you should do. Don't forget to do this. This is kind of a good thing to keep in mind. And it seems like he's kind of sporadic and, and, and not really focused on something. But it's kind of like a mom walking into your room and being like, what has happened here? Your socks are on the floor. You didn't do your homework, I can tell that. You did make your bed, so that was nice. Please keep doing that. You're not supposed to eat in your room. You know you're not supposed to eat in your room. Those kinds of things. And by the way, it's called Febreze. <laughs> it seems like it's all over the place. But it's actually kind of all on the same thing of I'm lovingly trying to get you to do something to better your life. I'm concerned about you, and because of that, I'm trying to give you some good, hip, good tips. It's done out of love. It's not done out of harshness. So the abundance of commands towards obedience that James has in this book shows that he thinks that actions that are the result of our belief are more important than just beliefs alone and that actions that come out of beliefs are the best distinguishing characteristics of our Christianity. Now, in regards to the messages that we preach here, it seems I am the one who keeps getting assigned to preach on passages about obedience and the work we're called to do in serving Jesus. I am not intentionally doing this. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to be the obedience guy. Uh, it does make me feel a little bit like this one stuffy deacon that uh, attended the church that I grew up at in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was an Assembly of God church, and when some of us, you know, eight, nine, ten-year-old boys would be cutting up in the front pews, he'd, he was always the guy who would come over and like, you boys, you stop your cracking wise, you stop your horseplay, and you respect the Lord. You don't want to wind up burning in a devil's hell, young person. He meant well. But uh, I don't want to be that guy. I think God just has a sense of humor about this because um, if you've been here for a little while, I've been sort of open and vulnerable in the past about mentioning 
I've had a little bit of a challenge balancing this aspect of the Christian faith. It's not really my strong suit. I'm like, why are we hearing from you then? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> it's a lot easier for me to lean into how can I serve God than how can I grow closer to God. That's just being honest. That's my personal walk right now. Servant of Jesus, you betcha, I'm on board. Friend of Jesus, I'm still working on it. <laughs> so it's a process. But I say this because as we're moving into this text in James, I don't want to create the incorrect impression that our obedience is responsible for or even maintains our salvation. So we're going to do a little bit of prep work before we dive into the message. Is that cool? All right, everybody ready? So we want to emphasize that God desires that we pursue him with our hearts. He desires an intimate, deep relationship with us because he loves us. The whole point of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is to restore us to being not just saved pets on display in a heavenly fish tank, but friends and family members in a relationship with God, to put us back into that good relationship with God. Disobeying God, which is sin, is not good for that relationship. And continual, unrepentant sin or disobedience severely damages that relationship. So, before we move on, we're all going to say this together. Repeat after me. God loves me. Because he loves me. <laughs> okay, moving forward. So in this book, James is talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to saved people. The audience he sent this to is born again. So what happens after you're born? You grow up, right? <laughs> right. Christianity is no exception. After you're born again, you're born spiritually again, you start growing. Or at least you should. So, James wants to help this community of believers grow. He wants them to mature. He loves them, and he wants what's best for them. He does not want them just to accept Jesus and be saved, and then get chewed up and spit out by the world. And there's kind of this, like, conundrum with parenthood. Um, some of you parents may be able to relate, to relate, but it's like you want to see your kids grow up. You want to see them turn into the young men and women that God designed them to be. You want to help them be their best selves. But there's also, like around two or three years old, in my mind, this point where you just kind of want to freeze them. <laughs> and, like, I don't ever want to not have this level of cuteness running around my house, saying these ridiculously absurd things that make me laugh. I want one of these forever. And I think that's honestly in line with God's heart, because he kind of pursues both with us. Growing in our faith means that we grow in knowledge and we grow in maturity. We start taking on the tasks and responsibilities of following God. And it means we start growing even more childlike. Childlike in our faith, our trust, and our reliance upon God at the same time. And we still say really absurd things to him that I'm sure make him laugh. But when we push away from being beloved children and friends of God, it's usually from inwardly thinking, surely this can't be all that God expects of me. I can't start from a place of being adored and appreciated. I'm going to have to do more to like earn that, right? If that's our belief, we're not seeing how powerful Christ's sacrifice was to set us free from sin. When we put our faith in Jesus, just boom, that's it. God sees us as perfect because he sees us as Jesus. 
If we think we need to do more to gain God's love, we have missed the mark on what it truly means to be children of a good, near, loving Father. We have somehow projected our past, maybe our own fathers, our hurts, our insecurities, our perspectives, our experiences on a God who is love, and nothing we can do will make him love us anymore. And there's absolutely nothing we can do that will make God love us any less. Because as we said earlier, God loves us because he loves us. Right. Thank you. I should have given you space to like do that and it would have been timed out nicely and sounded great on the podcast. But <laughs> Loving us was his decision before we were even here to do anything to convince him that we were worthy of being loved. He loves us because... Okay, there we go. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a guest speaker. Uh, his name is Joseph Z. He has a prophetic ministry. It was a really cool time. You can get the, the, the podcast or the sermon on the website, which is AntiochChicago.com. It was really, really cool. During that time he was here, he said something. He, he actually had all of us say something. And as, as if I haven't had you repeat things enough this morning, I'm going to do it again. But he had everyone say I please God. So let's do that right now. Let's just say, I please God. I please God. Right. He said, if when you say that, there's like a little tinge inside of you that's like, eh, I don't know about that. Like, eh, kind of, maybe. So if that's the feeling you have, it's likely that you've got a religion problem. Or you feel like, I'm not doing enough to earn that. I'm not actually doing what I'm supposed to be doing in order for me able to, to be able to see that. And that's just not true, because God is pleased by the perfection of Jesus in us. And he's pleased as we step into what he's calling us to do. So, after all of that set up, we're going to actually take a look at the text we're looking at this morning, which is James. We're going to start James 1.19. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness, filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we're going to focus mostly where it starts in verse 22, being doers of the word. And we did a sermon a little bit earlier this year on discipleship, and we talked about how Jesus told this parable about the wise man and the foolish man. You know, probably if you grew up in church, there's a little Sunday school song about it. But the wise man builds his house on the rock, foolish man builds his house on the sand. So we're going to cover a, a little bit of what we talked about in that sermon to cover those points. The same conditions apply to both of them. The same rains and storm fell on both of these guys. They just built on different foundations. 
And Jesus didn't say the man who built his house on the rock was somebody who had heard about me or was a Christian or anything of that nature. And then the man who was unwise and built his house on the sand didn't know about Jesus. He said, the, man, the people who hear my words and do them are like the man who built his house on the rock. The people who hear my words and don't do them are like the people who build their house on the sand. So he was making a point about obedience and letting us know that our ability to weather the storms of this life does not depend on how much preaching we hear, even if we hear it straight from the lips of Jesus. It's not about how much preaching we memorize, but it's on how well we obey and incorporate the teachings of Christ in our lives. Think about this. If every single church in our country was filled to capacity on this Sunday morning, and everybody went home and did absolutely nothing about what they heard. What would change in our world? Nothing. If we continue to do that, if we continually just go and hear and then don't do anything, I mean, honestly, the devil doesn't need to lift a finger to stop the work of the church because we never get going. But back to the text. There's this verse that says uh, about somebody who hears and does not do is like somebody who looks into a mirror intently but then walks away and forgets what his face looks like. And you might be thinking, I can go a, a whole day without looking in a mirror and I know what my face looks like. I don't forget my face. What's this about? That's, that's not really what's, what's going on here. Although they didn't really have mirrors as readily available back then. They didn't have them in every bathroom. So somebody might go a long time without actually seeing their face. So they might have gotten a little bit older since the last time they saw a mirror. Uh, they might have grown a beard, mostly men, some women. Um, but, uh, but that's not what he's talking about. The point is, somebody who goes up to a mirror to see what he looks like and then turns around and forgets what he looks like has completely lost the whole purpose of what he set out to do. Uh, if you're over the age of 30, you probably have this happen a lot where you walk into a room and you're like, why did I come in here? <laughs> I got up to come in here for some certain reason and then I didn't do it. You could think of it like, if somebody said, hey, are you hungry? Yes, I'm hungry. What are you going to do about it? All right, well, I guess I'll go order some food. And so you go to a restaurant, you put in an order, you give them the money, they put the food out there, and then you leave. <laughs> you completely didn't get out of this uh, exercise what you went in to get out of it. That's what he's saying you can compare to hearing the word and not doing it. You showed up to get something out of going to church. You showed up to get something out of hearing from Jesus preach on that mountain that day. And then when you walk away and you don't do it, it's just like you ordered a bunch of food and you never ate it. You're still hungry. So we don't want that to be us. And part of the reason that we put a lot of emphasis on life groups in our church is because, A, you know, yeah, they, they do instill community. They, they instill this, this sense of we're part of something bigger. They do instill a sense of accountability as well but it's also the accountability of keeping us focused on walking out our faith. And so we talk about uh, parts of scripture in life groups, and then we'll say, all right, what does that mean? How do we walk this out this week? How can I incorporate this into my life? How can I change what I'm doing based upon what the word of God says? Who can I share this with? Who can I tell about this? How do I walk this out? So if you're not yet in a life group, uh, you can go to antiochchicago.com, and there's a page there on life groups, or grab any of the leaders here. We'd love to talk to you about that. So, back to the verse. 
the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, in his work. So the perfect law is the law of liberty, freedom. The old law in the Old Testament was rules and oppression. It was a system that nobody could actually pull off. The perfect law, it says, is not a hardship to follow. And the work that you do will be blessed. But that means you've got to follow through with the work for the work to be blessed. If there's no work, there's no blessing over it. Again, that's emphasizing walking out the teaching of the word that we hear. It goes on to talk about pure religion. Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Loving others. And avoiding defilement. Remaining unstained from the world. Not removing ourselves from the world, but wisely deciding to avoid the things that contradict God's view. Back like late 80s, early 90s, when, when I was growing up in church, there was this, it seemed like a big move to kind of like separate Christian culture from everything else. And so there was like, we have Christian music, you know, and so if you like this secular band, this is the Christian alternative that you can listen to. They kind of sound like, you know, that light, you know. Uh, and then... It got to where, you know, there's Christian movies and there's Christian books and then there were Christian mints. You could get little mints with crosses on them in the checkout aisle because certs are of the devil. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do secular mints, thank you very much. Um, which mint would Jesus choose? Anyway, um, so there was a lot of that going on and it didn't really seem to have the effect that people were hoping that it would have. It kind of distanced us and felt like very much an us versus them mentality. And most of the kids who I knew who grew up in those homes that were like only Christian stuff usually kind of went wild once they got out of that. Um, I don't know if I would put myself in that camp, but, you know, uh, it was Christian music only at our house. Uh, we weren't even allowed to have Striper because they were, they were a little bit too far out there. First concert I ever went to, Ozzy Osbourne and Alice in Chains. So, sorry, Mom and Dad. <laughs> but anyway... So, so what's the opposite of pure religion here? If pure religion is loving others and staying undefiled, well, then we can put it together that false religion is not loving others, it's loving ourselves, building ourselves up, self-help, getting fed over feeding others, and still looking just like the world around us. We have to make sure that even though we're seeing and hearing the day-to-day -day things of the world, we're not being stained by them because we rely on what we know from God's word. God's worldview keeps us pure and unscathed from all the mess out there because we're focusing more on him. We're putting more of his words into our hearts than the stuff of the world. In the world, but not of the world. So uh, let's move on. We're going to move on to uh, chapter 2 verse 1, and I'm going to read through that section down to verse 13. So this next section is when James does the shift. Now he's talking about a different topic. So it says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, if he walks into your church, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. And there's a couple of ideas of what that means. Like maybe it's a, you serve me, you know, you hang out here and when I need a water, you can run and get one for me. Or maybe it means I'm going to exploit you 
and say, look, we're ministering, for, ministering to the poor as well. See how much we do for them? We're great, right? Either way, it's not treating these people as equals. It says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he said, do not commit adultery. And he also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Kind of no duh, but <laughs> he's, he's implying you might as well be guilty of both. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I know there's a whole lot there, but we're going to kind of dig in and pick out little bits and pieces of it. Otherwise, we'd be here till 4 p.m. So, this passage is talking about avoiding favoritism. Don't treat people differently. Christianity is following Jesus, and we try to do what he wants us to do. We try to love people like he does. We try to focus on God like he does. We try to follow his example for how to live our lives, and we're told in Scripture that God is no respecter of persons, and Jesus really exemplified that. Have you ever, like yourself, actually met a famous person? Yeah? A couple of you? Maybe? And, and I mean besides Jerry Evans of the Jerry Evans School of Music. <laughs> Local celebrity. Um, <clears throat> people get starstruck a lot of times when they're around celebrities. I, the first time I ever met a celebrity was, uh, I was very young, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but it's back in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and usually the night of Thanksgiving, they would do this thing called the Utica Square lighting, which Utica Square was this cool little uh, shopping area, and they would put all the Christmas lights up, and then at one point at night, they'd light everything up, and all of the town would come out and watch it because Netflix hadn't been invented yet. <clears throat> so um, anyway, we're all out there, uh, we're out there with our family, and so the rock band Aerosmith had just had like this big uh, resurgence of popularity there in the mid-80s, and so my brother and I are walking through the crowd, and then I look up, and like, that's Steven Tyler, the lead singer of Aerosmith. Uh, I found out later he actually, he married a woman who was from Tulsa, and so that's why he was there. But uh, at first, it's just going through your mind like, is that really him? Is that really the guy? And realizing he's got these bodyguards all around him, and it's like, that's him. And he's looking right at me, and I'm like, In my mind, I'm like processing through, with like, should I compliment his scarves? If you've seen him before, it's like the scarves are everywhere. I'm like, should I, should I say that's a nice, no, that's dumb. It's dumb to say a nice scarf. Uh, what should I say? I, I've seen you on TV. I mean, of course. I mean, he's probably heard that before. You know, and, and then he moves on. And, you know, I never said a thing to him. But I was starstruck. I was just kind of dumbfounded that this celebrity right here in my midst, you know, this guy I'd seen on TV before was inches away from my face. 
Famous people get that. They get the starstruck treatment. They also get preferential treatment almost wherever they go. Uh, a lot of them have talked about uh, the, the irony that when they were poor and struggling and trying to make it, nobody gave them free stuff. <laughs> and then they get famous and, hey, everything's free. Come over here. We'll give you free coffee. We'll give you free illegal substances. Um, kind of ironic. A lot of them talk about how they just want to be treated like a normal person, be able to go to the grocery store without getting harassed for, uh, for a signature. Yet still, they get treated very differently. And that's the way the world works. But it should not be the way the church works. Because that's not how God works. That's not how Jesus works. Quick sidebar, the whole professional Christian or celebrity Christian terms you may have heard, that's bad stuff. <laughs> we should not be respecters of persons. We should be respecters of God. So if Jesus said, God is no respecter of persons, and he lived that out by loving and ministering to alike the poor, prostitutes, tax collectors, and thieves, as well as the rich and elite of society, and the religious, religious leaders also, we should say, okay, I need to treat all of these people equally as well. So I want you to imagine, what if somebody famous actually came in here this morning? And they sat right next to you, like one on each side. You got like Brad Pitt on your on your right, and like Kanye West on your left. Right. Maybe you'd rather pick other famous people, like somebody famous with talent. Um, so think, these famous people are right next to you. They're sitting right there. They're breathing the same air you're breathing. Right? Does that affect how you act this morning? Does that affect? if you're inviting the person sitting next to you to a life group or not? Does that affect how you worship God during worship? Are you going to raise your hands or are you not? Is there a different thought process that goes on because of who's sitting next to you? Then imagine Jesus appears on the stage, like bodily. I mean, he still has like the body that he had when he rose from the grave. He's still got that thing. Like it's, it's in existence somewhere. And he shows up right here. Would you be concerned about the celebrities sitting next to you? Would you be thinking like, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed, but... No. <laughs> Why? Because we have Jesus in our sights. Now it's God, the creator of the universe, our savior on stage, and people. And that's the dividing line. God and people. If we have Jesus in our sights, everybody else becomes equal. Celebrities are only human, and humans are people too. Do famous people, thank you for that hand, brother. Do famous people or super rich people actually offer us anything worthwhile anyway? Can they really provide us with anything eternally worthwhile? The answer is no. I think when we allow somebody's status to impact how we're acting, they impact our thoughts or our actions towards them, our posture, honestly, is one of getting. What can I get out of this? What can I get out of this person? Will they like me? Will they think I'm cool? Will they invite me into their inner circle? Will they give me something? Will they provide me uh, something if I play this relationship right? Will they give me money, maybe? An opportunity? Will they give me career advice? Will they just give me a fun story to tell at a party? What do I get out of this? 
But our posture as Christians has to be giving, not getting. And let's be honest, people, people in general just like to be close to power and influence. Well, you know, I, I actually know the manager of this restaurant, close friends with the owner. Or, thanks a lot, but I think I'll wait and have the pastor pray for me. People also like to be in the cool kids group. I've, I've always ascertained that, just being honest. And some people, get felt, some people feel a little bit let down by the church when it's not the cool kids group, or if they're not in the cool kids group within the church. There are all these inner circles in like every group of people that there, that there is. Some people actually try to inject cool factor into the church for that very purpose, and it usually doesn't work because the church was never designed for just the cool kids. It was designed for God's kids. And he has this interesting habit of continually picking the people that the world deems unworthy of admiration. That's just his M.O. If you've ever thought that the people in church seem you know, kind of lame or different than you'd like them to be in whatever way, that is a dangerous thing. The people in the congregation might not look like we look, might not look hipster enough, but God has chosen these people. I was reading about some churches that actually switched to exclusively catering to millennial hipsters, and they fold. Why? A, because they got rid of all the wisdom of the older people in their congregation, and B, because they got rid of the people who had valuable skills and gifts given from God just because they didn't dress right or they weren't in the right age bracket. That is insanity, not Christianity. C.S. Lewis, who... I love so much. Um, he wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional piece, but there's a lot of truth that can be gained out of it. Uh, the premise for the book is that there's one elder general demon, and he's sending letters to his underling, kind of like beginning soldier demon, trying to tell him how to get the human being he's assigned to to abandon his faith in God or to never secure his faith in God in the first place. So here's a paraphrased section of that. Again, this is the older demon telling the younger demon how to like, get this guy to abandon his faith. It says, one of our great allies in pulling people away from God is the church itself. I don't mean the global big C church as we see her spread throughout all of time and space for eternity, terrible as a spiritual army ready to attack us. That, I confess, strikes fear in the boldest of demons. But fortunately, humans don't see it like that. All the typical person sees is an aging, crummy building on a plot of land. When he goes inside, he sees a local business owner, or business owner, or maybe a barista with a oily expression on his face, reading from a book containing words which neither of them understands very well, and a screen showing religious lyrics, mostly poorly written and out of context, and in very small print. When he gets to his seat and looks around him, he sees the kind of people he might usually avoid in day-to-day -day life. You want to lean pretty heavily on that. Make his mind wander between his idea of the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Are these really the people he wants to be associated with? Are these really the chosen people of a perfect almighty God? Does he actually want to spend eternity with this lot? But when we view people like God does, 
when all people are truly equal. Everyone on this planet is somebody who needs more Jesus. Everybody needs more of God in their lives. And only then can we shift to a posture of giving because we're not giving out of superiority. We're giving out of just the overflow of what God's giving us. We are the same in God's eyes. When we transition to giving, it's more of a question of what can I do for you, not what can I get out of this. How can I share with you what God has given me? No matter how successful or wealthy you are, you need more God in your life. No matter how poor you are, no matter how unrecognized you have been by society, you need more of God in your life, and none of us are better than you. He goes on to say in that passage, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and if you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. It goes on to say that any sin, any breaking of the law, and it might as well be murder. Pretty harsh. This makes sense, though, if we're talking about a completely perfect, totally holy God. If we show partiality or show favoritism, we prefer one kind of person in our church over another, then that's as bad as murder. That's as bad as it gets. Uh, the band can go ahead and come back up. In Revelation, it talks about the end of time. Things are wrapping up, heading into eternity. And there's this beautiful moment that's mentioned that's talking about people praising God. It's in Revelation 7, 9. It's verse 9 and 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Nothing mentioned about which ones were cool. Nothing mentioned about their socioeconomic status. It's every tribe, every people, every language represented here. Eternity is going to be a colorful place. So we might as well get with the program right now. Race, social status, nationality, poor, wealthy, whatever. We are all equal in God's eyes. And if you're in here today, we're glad to have you here. You are welcome in this place. We hope you come back. We hope you feel welcomed by us. We hope you feel loved, not just by God, but by us as well. There's no social order here. There's no assigned seats. If you want to sit in the front row, come on up. You're welcome to it. Back to James real quick. We need the mercy that is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 13. We need mercy, not judgment. Without mercy, how would we do if God judged us on our works? If this really was like a, a salvation works thing, how would we rank, honestly? I mean, in the Bible, we see all these prophets in the Old Testament who saw incredible miracles happen. We saw the Apostle John in the New Testament, these men of incredible faith who were so incredibly close to God that they saw a physical manifestation of God in front of them. And when they were in the presence of God, they hit the dirt saying, we are not worthy. How would we do compared to them? We need mercy, and we need to extend that mercy to others because it says, when you do that, that's the thing that prevents 
judgment from coming. So, let's pray as we wrap this up. And just take a moment as you're sitting there in your seat. And quietly, just ask God to reveal where we've heard his words, but maybe not follow through. Ask, where have I been a hearer and not a doer? Is there somewhere that I can do better in that? Just wait patiently for him to, to reveal anything. Next, let's pray and ask where we might have shown partiality to reveal how we can change the posture of our hearts towards others to see them the way God does. Father God, we do seek to follow through on the teachings that you bring to us. We pray that throughout this week and through the coming months and years of our life, that Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us when we need to make a renewed commitment to that, that you would continue to give us revelation of what you're calling us to walk out in our lives. And God, we pray that you would help us to see people the way you see people and to welcome them with open arms and to be willing to say and do the things that you call us to do to minister to them, to give them what you have given us. Lord, we thank you for your mercy over us. We thank you for your love for us, that we don't have to feel like we've just got to get this right, that we've got to be able to do this perfectly, that if we're making any mistakes, then we've just blown it, and we're, we're outside of your love or your approval of us. But we can thank you that you continually receive us with open arms. You love us because you decided to love us. And that in those moments that, as we're definitely going to be, we're not perfect, you still provide that mercy for us and continue to wrap your arms around us and show us your love. Thank you for that this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.